Welcome to another episode of Inside Startup Investing. As always, I am your host, Chris Lestrino, founder and CEO of King's Crowd. Inside Startup Investing is a number one podcast for learning about the best startups and investors in the online private markets. If you are a startup investor, this is a show for you. This podcast is powered by King's Crowd's proprietary rating technology that helps us to uncover the best founders and stories that you need to hear about before clicking invest. Now, before we get started, we want to thank our sponsor, LawCloud, the premier solution for founders to prepare to raise capital online. Whether you need to file a Form C, a Form 1A, or a subscription agreement, LawCloud provides the lowest cost, easiest to use toolkit for founders to make raising capital online easier than ever. Now, on to today's show. Today, we're talking about a really interesting topic in the sector of clean air technology. Um, If you are really interested in climate technology, I think this is the episode for you. We're going to be hopping in with Andre Klochko, who is the founder and CEO of Airtheum. This is a very deep tech business that has been building some very, very interesting technology in the clean tech sector. Um, And I'm going to let him explain it because it is a little bit complicated uh, but I'm excited to to get more insights on how it works um, and learn about the massive market opportunity that exists for this business as well. So with that, I'm going to hand it over to our guest, Andre. Andre, thank you so very much for being here today. Thank you, Chris. Absolutely. So can you tell us first off a little bit about your background and then we'll hop in on Airtheum? So um, I'm a physicist by training. Uh, I graduated from Ecole Polytechnique with uh, a, a master's degree in, engin- in engineering and um, did a, a plasma physics PhD after that. And right after the PhD, uh, after maybe two months of, um, of postdoc, I jumped sh- straight into Airsium. It's been a journey of seven years. Uh, we had to completely change our core technology once, um, which is also why it, uh, it spans such a long time. Um, it's been uh, tremendously uh, enriching. I've learned so much along the journey. I'm really happy about uh, the trajectory we've had so far. And yes, we ha- we do have a shot at doing something for the CO2 problem of Earth and doing so in a way that is actually profitable from an economic standpoint, which is why it has a shot to be deployed really, really fast. And this is what this is one of the things that excites me a lot about this project. Terrific. So, yeah, let's get into it. Um, tell me more about what Airtheum actually is. Uh, Airtheum is a startup. We are 12 people right now. We are two co-founders, so Frank and I. Frank is living in the US, I'm in France, and almost all of the team is in France. So we are building a new kind of machine. It's called a heat pump, uh, but it's not uh, any kind of heat pump. It's a very, very hot heat pump. It can get to about 550 degrees Celsius or about, about 1000 Fahrenheit. Well, who on earth would need such high temperatures, right? It's not for a house. It's for industrial uses. There is a lot of uh, there, are, there are a lot of cases in, in the industry where you need such high temperatures. And today what people do is they burn natural gas or coal. That's usually cheaper than to use electricity because electricity is more expensive than natural gas in almost every case. So to make uh, an electric uh, boiler, for example, cheaper than a gas-fired boiler, you have to make it a lot more efficient. And to do that, you use the principle of a heat pump. So a heat pump is a very specific uh, piece of equipment. To better understand it, um, an image I use most of the time is to talk about a fridge. 
So most people have a fridge at, uh, at home. And if you put, uh, let's say, a pound of cheese in the fridge, and at first it's at room temperature, the fridge will cool it down. So the energy, the heat energy will go away from the block of cheese. And it has to go somewhere. Energy cannot be destroyed. So when you look at the back of your fridge, you'll see that there is heat coming up. There is heat from electricity and there is heat taken from the, the block of cheese. So um, that heat that you get out is more than the electricity from than the heat from electricity because there is heat that has been taken from the food in the fridge. Imagine now that instead of stealing heat from the fridge, uh, from the inside of the fridge, you take heat from the surrounding air, for example. You make the surrounding air cooler and the, and the inside uh, hotter. The inside can be a house, but it can also be a boiler, a very hot piece of equipment. And this sum of heat from the electricity and from the outside world is what gives you efficiency. In other words, electricity is a noble kind of energy. It can do more than just be dissipated in a resistor. It can do more efficient things. Uh, this happens in fridges. It happens in heat pumps. Uh, Tesla cars have heat pumps in them, by the way. Uh, and, and it can also happen here in heat pump-based steam boilers. That's what we're building. And the point is nobody has been able to build them before because it's very hard to make such a hot heat pump, just technically. Um, and that's the first, uh, the world first we're bringing, a heat pump that can get so hot that it can cover all the needs of the industry from 160 Celsius to 550 Celsius. So from about 320 Fahrenheit to about 1,000. Can you tell me why the problem that you're solving is so challenging to do and that no one else has been able to develop this technology to date? Um, it turns out that most of the time in heat pumps uh, and in fridges and in uh, all, all of similar appliances, freezers, for example, um, what people actually do is they take a substance, uh, for example, water or ammonia or something, they boil it, so they, so they, they, they uh, vaporize it, and then they condense it. So when you hear a gargling sound in your fridge, it, because it's condensing this uh, active fluid, somewhere and when it's condensing it's releasing the heat that's why you hear it because it's on the outside of the fridge um, and then inside the fridge it will evaporate and that's why you hear sometimes a hiss uh, because it gets um, depressurized and then it uh, evaporates slowly and this evaporation and condensation take place at two different uh, pressures that's why it works uh, you have a low pressure side inside the fridge which is low temperature and a high pressure which is higher temperature just like a, a closed cooking device can reach higher temperatures in boiling, here it's the same, it's, it's, it's just different pressures. Well, it turns out that most substances can do different boiling temperatures across different pressures, but those temperatures cannot be too different. They cannot be too far apart. Otherwise, you get into a state called a supercritical state. That's a state where you don't have a liquid, you don't have a gas, it's something in between. If you Google that of uh, CO2 undergoing supercritical transition, it's a bit uh, trippy to look at. It's, it's quite weird. Um, but this is what happens. And when that happens, you don't have a specific uh, temperature where density becomes lower. It's a range of temperatures. So instead of going for the temperature you want and then releasing the heat, you have to overshoot first and then go down. And this overshoot is what makes uh, things inefficient. And also you have to go to very, very high uh, pressures 
Um, and those high pressures uh, mean very sick tubing and risk of explosion. So that's why people haven't really built such very hot heat pumps, especially on ranking cycles before. It's quite uh, specific to do. You also need a lot of turbines in cascade to, to reach that point. We do something completely different. Instead of going for ranking cycles, we go for stirring cycles. Stirring cycles is, is, is just a type of uh, heat engine. Instead of condensing and boiling something, you compress and expand the gas. It stays the gas all the time. So we use helium for, for that purpose. Helium, because it's very heat conductive, helium is seven times more heat conductive than air. And uh, we compress it, extract the heat, uh, push it on a coal, you know, inside a cold cylinder, expand it, take heat from the environment, push it inside the hot cylinder, compress it, etc. And the problem with those turning engines is they've never been good enough for applications. They've always been, they've always been too expensive or um, inefficient and or uh, not reliable enough. Sometimes all of the three, most of the time, all of the three actually. And we found a way to solve all three problems all at once. And that's also why it took us so many years because had it been easy, it would have been found over the 200 years that the Stirling engine has existed and it hasn't yet. Um, so that's why it's a very deep technical problem that was solved and brought all the way to commercialization in an application where it gets some traction because people want to decarbonize, people want to get rid of fossil fuels in some applications like steam and drying, especially in Europe, where we have uh, less natural gas, it's more expensive as there is carbon tax. All of that together make it cheaper for, the, for, for industrial companies to switch to electricity if only they have the right kind of heat pump. Building deep technology, very, very challenging to do, takes many years, you've been through that process. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I've found that can trip up scientists at times and, and really minds is they create technology that no one actually wants to use. Now, I don't think that's the case here. Can you tell us about the commercialization of your technology? What are some commercial applications you've already applied it to? And where do you think this can go in terms of commercializing this technology? So we are still very, very early. We are still uh, building bigger and bigger prototypes and demonstrators. Uh, we already have a storing engine in the lab. We actually had a few before, but the, the one we have now is instrumented and showed us everything we needed to know up to that stage. The next one, which is being built right now, we have mo uh, many of the parts we need to build it, will reach 250 Celsius, so almost 500 Fahrenheit, and will be 5 kilowatts instead of 100 watts from, for, for the previous one. And that machine will be almost the last one until... 100 kilowatt machine, which would be the first to reach commercial sites. 100 kilowatts is big enough for many applications. For example, if you want to um, remove CO2 from exhaust, right? If you are in a factory and you want to remove CO2, you will need some kind of, um, of sorbent, uh, something to adsorb CO2 and then desorb. To cycle that sorbent on and off, you need a temperature cycle. So people usually heat it up and cool it down uh, day in, day out, uh, all the time. And to do that, you need a source of heat. And so we've talked to companies doing that, and they want to use our heat pump to do that cycling because it's more efficient. And they will not burn natural gas for that, obviously. Um, so that's one application. A much more widespread application today will be food and agro. Anytime you are processing foods, you have to cook them, you have to fry them, you have to peel potatoes, you have to do a zillion things. And all of those things today are powered by steam and they have some huge steam boiler sitting somewhere uh, providing all of that steam and the steam goes all the way into the circuits. 
and it performs all of that work, uh, that useful work for the factory. Uh, well, we want to replace those gas-fired boilers by our heat pump to produce the steam. Finally, there is drying, and drying, uh, again, is everywhere. Every time you mine rocks, most of the time those rocks will be quite wet. So you have to dry them before you crush them to a powder and then do other things to them. Uh, this happens a lot in the concrete industry, which is 7% of worldwide CO2. Um, it happens also in other industries, like, for example, lithium ion batteries. You, this is a different kind of drying. Uh, the active materials are deposited on the electrodes uh, like a powder, but to bind them, they use some kind of solvent uh, to deposit the right amount and all of that. And then they dry the solvent with hot air. So they need about 150 degrees Celsius of hot air, and that's half the energy expenditure of a gigafactory. And you heard Elon, he said uh, he likes his gigafactories not to have a big gas pipe leading to them. He wants everything to be electric. Well, here you go. You cannot burn natural gas to do that, so you have to use a heat pump, or else your heat demand from the whole factory goes plus uh, several tens of percent. Um, so it's everywhere. It's 3% of worldwide CO2. It's $13 billion per year as an industry. Those heat pumps just in our segment, why they, not, why they don't exist again. So essentially, we have our, world, our own world garden to go in and to follow us there. People have to do the same technological breakthrough we've made. Which will, which will, of course, be protected by patents. What will it take to kind of enter the market and start to really build up the revenues for this business? What are some of the steps you're taking to get there? So um, a great thing about that market is that it's very, it has a big variance of uh, returns. So some segments have a very high return, most segments have a reasonable return, and some segments are not good, in, not good enough. Um, so if you start with the most profitable segments, you can actually sell a machine, even if it's made by CNC, almost. So um, even if we have a small factory and work with partners to make the parts and just assemble and ensure quality in the end, even with a small factory, we're still able to sell to those segments. Moreover, what happens is once we've made a few demonstrators, uh, let's say uh, half a dozen, then there are finance companies across the world who fund th these kinds of projects because they have a fast payback time, let's say a few years. So because of that, they stretch the payback, let's say on 10 years, put a big interest rate at first to compensate for the risk, and they agree to take 100% of the expenses of the project. So we don't have to bring in any equity. We don't have to spread our equity to thin on our first projects. And this is really cr critical to be able to get into the markets, actually fund projects, actually get there, and then, we'll, of course, we'll work with a lot of partners, some who will do low-level maintenance, some, some who will make parts, some who will advise us on what, uh, what mistakes not to make when you deploy something uh, commercially in, in a factory and all of that. It's a constellation of, uh, of forces that have to conspire to make this work. And we are building this constellation right now. What does typical upfront cost let's say, for one look like, and I imagine on most, most industrial scales, putting in these heat pumps, you're not putting in one, you're probably putting in many. But what does it look like for one object or, or one heat pump? In the long term, let's say the equivalent of our Apple II, so our machines that we plan to sell the most, will be a megawatt scale uh, heat pump for steam. That's something that uh, can be combined to make a few megawatts. Uh, it's in the center of the bell curve of demand. It's everywhere. Uh, that machine, long term, we plan to produce it maybe for, let's say, uh, 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 between $200 and $400 per, 
per kilowatt. Uh, so that's more expensive than boilers because you cannot beat a boiler. But compare that to the savings you make between natural gas and electricity. And it's only a fraction of what the company, is, um, the user will save. Essentially, this is also why we plan to take on a heat as a service model. There are many reasons for that. So today, factories, they don't like the fact that energy goes up and down and they have carbon tax and they have all of that to manage. They're not uh, energy companies, they're potato companies or uh, and Patrick companies or something. They're, they're not there to manage uh, heat as an energy vector and do all of the, all, all what's around. Um, instead, what we'll do, we'll just uh, install the machine. It will be funded by outside uh, finance companies who are designed to take that kind of risk. And then we'll just uh, get revenue from the heat that is actually taken with some commitment on a minimum amount of heat, of course. And it will be just like an energy company. The difference being that then we can have uh, solar and wind PPAs. We are essentially Trojan forces to get uh, solar and wind energy into factories. And here it's, it's, there is also another point that has to be mentioned. Is, it's that when you try to combine solar and wind in the electric grid, uh, when you don't have them, you have to turn on gas-fired power plants, which are quite expensive. They're about $1 per watt. It's, it's actually cheap compared to, uh, let's say, a coal-fired power plant, which is even more expensive. But it's still some expense that you have to cover. And the less you use it, the more it's a problem. Compared to that, the fact that if you put a heat pump in a factory, you usually have an old boiler sitting alongside it. You, we won't scrape it down completely. We'll just leave it there. And at times where there is no solar, there is no wind, for some reason electricity is super expensive, no problem. If it's just 10% of the air, you can still turn on the boiler. It's still 90% of decarbonation. Uh, but economically, it's really great because you're doing flexibility with a very cheap engine because the boiler is... Um, $100 per, per kilowatt, it's almost nothing. It's, it's been amortized by, by that time. So your flexibility is at its lowest cost exactly there. So that's why it's, uh, there are a lot of um, bonuses to being the energy company rather than the heat pump sales company in this market. Are you saying that when you install these heat pumps in a factory, right, they'll start throwing off energy. That's what the heat pump is going to take that heat and turn it into energy. Now, is that energy going to simply be utilized by the factory to offset what would otherwise be other sources of energy, thus lowering their energy bill? Or are you actually saying, no, we're going to take that energy. We're not going to use it at the factory. We're going to begin to sell it to outside parties and the, the factory makes money and we make money. I just want to make sure I understand the business. Model. Oh, okay. Okay. So the heat pump does only one thing. It takes uh, outside energy from the air electricity yep. and combines them to produce steam. So it replaces uh, natural gas as a source of the steam. So instead of paying for natural gas, you pay for electricity. But you always pay for, for, for something. The heat pump never produces anything. It's just that us as Airsium, we plan to also be an energy company. So we will have, or at least has a, have a branch that deals with energy supply. So we will uh, buy uh, energy from solar and wind farms that are remote and then bring that energy inside the factories to power the heat pumps. Instead of uh, burning natural gas, uh, they will buy heat from us that will be produced from electricity that we have bought somewhere else from renewable sources. And they just get the steam and everything works in their factory afterwards. You've created this really sophisticated technology. It sounds as though you, you've largely been able to prove that it works and is safe um, and are starting to look at multiple different end applications that you can go after. Um, talk to me a little bit about 
your funding, where you are, and where that funding is going to be applied to kind of take next steps as a business? Our biggest source of funding to date has definitely been uh, equity crowdfunding. So we've been doing uh, two rounds on WeFunder, one in 2021 and another one which started in 2022 and is still ongoing. Um, those rounds are open to uh, all kinds of people, so unaccredited investors. Of course, it depends on the local uh, laws of the countries, but most many countries can participate. Residents, fiscal residents and nationals from many countries can participate. Um, so the way it works is that investors uh, invest in Ersium or in an, into an SPV that then invests in, in Ersium. This is what happens now. And uh, in return, they get a safe. So a safe is a simple agreement for future equity. It's a document that converts into shares. In some cases, everything is on our WeFunder page, of course. Um, the definitive information is on the WeFunder page. Um, but this allowed us to raise funds in a, in a continuous process, in an ongoing process. And this has really helped, um, uh, helped us work towards building the demonstrators and the prototypes that we needed to actually make things work and get to a Series A eventually. That's where institutional investors are coming in. We are actually in the middle of an institutional round right now as well. We are talking to VCs and assembling a round of a few million dollars. Um, this will allow us to get to the demonstrator stage. And after that, we should be able to get Series A. But uh, equity crowdfunding has really been instrumental. Of course, it's not the only source. We have a lot of non-dilutive capital. We have a lot of research tax credit. In France, there are also uh, subsidy mechanisms that, that uh, really help because in a sense, we are doing research that should have been done in public labs but has never been done there. So we are, uh, in a sense, doing it instead of them, uh, in a way. Um, even if it's a private endeavor, in the end, we want this machine to be deployed everywhere. So it's still a kind of public service, just that it takes a different shape. What about this technology that you're building and, and the company, Aerotheum itself, excites you? What about it are you so passionate about? You've been doing this for years, you know, and have had to take so many hard steps to even get to market, right? to build the technology. What is it that makes you so passionate about it and excited about it? Hmm. Um, well, I'm the kind of guy who reads lots of science fiction. So when you do that, you tend to see a multitude of glimpses into what the future could be or what some aspects of the future could be like. And you start wondering, okay, where are we heading? What will happen 20, 50, 100, 200 years from now? Um, and you start worrying about some uh, known s subjects, for example, uh, Fermi paradox, right? Um, when you look up to the stars um, and you s and you scrutate them with uh, um, uh, uh, how to say it, spectrometers and telescopes and all of that, you don't see any trace of intelligent action on those stars or on the surrounding medium. You don't see any trace of intelligence at all in the sky. And that's kind of weird because um, when I was a kid, uh, we learned that there were only two uh, big branchings in life, which were eukaryotes and prokaryotes. And then when you look Wikipedia today, you see archaea. There is a third uh, type of living beings that is completely different from the other ones. And the more you dig, the more you see that life sprung up many times 
and died in a way many times in many different places. And when you think like that, you begin to get comfortable with the idea that if there is, if there are the right circumstances on the planet, then bacteria, maybe they have a very large probability to appear actually. And maybe bacterial life isn't that rare across the universe. It's, it's, it's very early to tell that. It's very hard to know that for a fact, uh, of course. But what if this is the case? What if there are so many bacteria around the universe, but no traces of intelligent life, right? This means somewhere between those two points, everything dies out. Is it intelligence that is, that is rare? I don't think so as well. There are good articles about the evolution of the brains of animals. And you see all those stages it had to go through. And it's kind of linear in a way. Of course, there are a lot of jumps here and there, but long term, over hundreds of millions of years, it's kind of linear. So I don't think intelligence is rare. But really, when one living species starts to decouple from its surroundings, from its ecosystem, that's when things go south, uh, based on my perception of things. Of course, I could be wrong. I only demand to talk about this, and I talk about this with a lot of uh, experts uh, as much as I can. But this may mean that we are in a, a video game, uh, there is an old video game that is called The Very Unfair Game. It's a game where you die for no reason. Like you, it, it's a 2D platformer, you go some, somewhere and suddenly you fall through the floor. You couldn't see it, but you just died. Okay, so now you, jumped, you jump over, over the invisible uh, non-floor and then something else comes from, from the top and, and, and crushes you. And then you avoid so the things that crushes you and etc. Uh, how many attempts do you need to get to the end of the game, right? Uh, a lot. Um, and that's normal. But we only have one attempt. And so many things can kill us. So we have to make the game in our heads. What can kill us? What will kill us faster than the other things? So thinking like this, I realized that there are many threats to um, keeping the biosphere of Earth intact, humanity intact, and all live together happily throughout the centuries. It's not that easy, actually. Uh, but many people listening probably are, uh, agree to this. But I was thinking, how can I have the right kind of impact over that big equation? How can I help in the end game? Not the intermediary results, but really the end game. So climate, of course, is one lever. If climate goes haywire, many things go wrong. Uh, wars can, can, can happen. Many bad things can happen. And of course, lots of species will die. Um, biodiversity is, to me, the, one of the most important variables. If biodiversity goes too low, we are biological. We have, I don't know how many different kinds of microorganisms in our guts. Uh, we depend on so many living beings to be alive. Imagine you are in a world where biology doesn't exist anymore and you have to produce an orange. How many billions and hundreds of billions of dollars will you have to spend to make an orange that couldn't be distinguished from the real thing? Right? And today you, you, you buy them from for, for less than a dollar, right? So there is something there that we take for granted forces that are way beyond our control. Um, and so, so yeah, climate change is, is one way to that. I think AI is a very, very big part of the equation of what could kill us in different ways. Right? It could be very indirect, right? It could be people using tools from, from the AI world to do stuff. And then those tools being assembled to do other things and then assembled again, etc. You You just wait 10 years and then 10 years and again 10 years and, and you look up every 10 years and you see what happens. It could, be, it could happen very fast. So I want to participate in that equation. I want to find people who, to talk about this, to think about this, to act about this fast enough. 
the action has to happen fast, but it's so complex, it has to be discussed. And we need a strong discussion on this, and we need fast action on this. And to me, um, startups are a different way from politics to achieve this. They have to work together in a way, but they're still different enough that they can enrich each other. If politics are stuck at some point, um, uh, private endeavors could compensate for some of it in some cases. And that's one of the things that really excites me about this. I think that's one of the best answers I've ever heard. That's, uh, I, I love the overarching ambition to all of this and, and passion behind it. I think that's really, really cool. Um, I'm certainly fascinated by the business. I think it certainly can have a major impact. Um, and I'm not sure people always fully understand the orders of magnitude that is the industrial sector and just quite how large that is. I mean, you know, whether you look at uh, you know, a company like Dow Chemical or any one of the major industrial companies just in the United States and then on a global level, you're talking about tens and tens of billions and hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, it is a massive sector. And if you could provide one solution that helps cut down on cost of electricity while also replacing, you know, what is not necessarily a clean technology for a clean technology, that could have some major implications that are maybe hard to understand if you're not in the industrial sector and understand quite how big that is. So I just want to reiterate that. Um, I think that's what makes this opportunity so exciting. And you've developed a technology that is incredibly hard to replicate and just go and do, especially if you put patents around it. So I, I definitely see the um, the excitement of the investment opportunity. Uh, but for those listening, you know, what's kind of your last pitch to them uh, if they're kind of on the line of deciding whether or not they want to invest? I would say you only have one life. Some of you may have children and maybe they will have kids and um, they will have a planet in some state, right? The, you, you cannot stop time. What can we do today to make their lives better? Well, I'm fully committed to, to that goal. And I see a lot of uh, avenues to do that with technology and business together. Um, and that's what I'm after. So if they share those values, I think we are aligned. Beyond that, um, industrial heat is not the only thing we're after. Uh, this machine uh, can also be used for energy storage on a very, very large scale, um, which means it has what it takes to fully replace natural gas as the source of electricity in many parts of the world. Natural gas and coal, obviously, which is uh, very much used in many countries that don't have natural gas and is even worse. Um, it could even replace nuclear, and nuclear is this uh, double-edged sword. It's uh, Technologically, it works. Uh, from an engineering standpoint, it works. But there is perception around it uh, that is negative, and I totally understand that because I also have doubts uh, about nuclear that are not the usual doubts about, okay, it will absolutely explode and everything. No, it, 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 it's not only that. To me, it's when you, when you go after nuclear, you go after a world where 50 years from now, you are reasonably certain that some mad guru will not um, assemble a force of 5,000 zealots and just storm uh, um, a nuclear waste deposit site or some active nuclear power plant and just do something with it. Um, if the uranium is still in the mountain, it's kind of harder to do. You, you need a lot more time, a lot more resources to do actual damage. Um, and so it keeps us a little bit further from really bad scenarios if the world, as we know, it starts to change. And when you look at social media and the very deep action you can have on people and on communities, um, to me, there is, it's like a huge real-time 
sociology experiment and we don't know where it's going. So it could very well end up a, into a very unstable territory and we don't know that yet. And so to me, the simplest uh, kinds and the least dangerous kinds of energy should be privileged and um, storing renewable solar and wind energy as uh, an ammonia tank that never moves and is sitting at the center of a kilometer-wide solar array is the closest thing I can think of to a power plant that has very few chances of doing anything wrong. Even if the ammonia tank bursts, um, the plume would go up as, uh, as opposed to CO2 storage, where if it bursts, it clings to the ground just like Lake Neos and it asphyxiates everything in its path. Um, of course, ammonia is toxic, but because of that feature and because it's at the center of this huge solar farm, um, it shouldn't do any actual damage. Uh, and it's actually used as a fertilizer. Uh, there is the, the direct ammonia being used as a fertilizer across the world. Um, so, and if this happens, today it removes 30% of worldwide CO2 and tomorrow probably 60%. By the time, time where all transportation becomes electrified, Electricity has to come from somewhere. It will come from solar and wind and gas and coal and nuclear. So if you replace the vectors that could cause problems, if everything becomes above reproach, then you may have at least a basis for a society that is regenerative. Because after that, the next problem will be sourcing the waste, sorting all the plastic. We used to ship it to one country that say no, a second country said no, a third country said no. Then where do you put it? At the bottom of the ocean, it will swim right back at you and being the fish that, and all, all, all the stuff from the sea that we eat. Um, so it's everywhere and it has to be addressed. And to address that, you need energy as well, energy that has to be renewable. Everything we do has some kind of negative externality. And to compensate that, you really need to start to clean up everything that we do and the way that we do it. And we are really committed along that path. Andre, thank you very much for your insights. Uh, definitely a fascinating company and a fascinating mind. Really appreciate your time and, uh, and, and thoughtful responses here today. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And if you'd like to invest in Airthium, you can go check them out on WeFunder. If you want to get the uh, investment research behind the opportunity, you could check that out on King's Crowd. Um, and thank you, as always, for listening. Thanks so much for listening to the show. If you want to use the same tools I do to find amazing founders like the ones I have on the show to power your investment decisions, you can head on over to kingscrowd.com backslash startups to try out our Edge Toolkit for 30 days free.